Hello and welcome to Clock Spinning, the podcast of Magic's history as told card by card through Cube. I'm Austin and with me as always is Connor. How are you today, Connor? You know, I'm I'm doing pretty good. I had the 4th of July, saw some lovely fireworks and my dog did not have a meltdown, so I can't complain. What's the secret? My dog is like on day four of a four-day meltdown. Oh, that, that's rough. I don't know. He's just... He's very chill about this kind of thing. Usually, some I think last year he he struggled with it a little bit. This year he just barely noticed. Super dog. Well, if you're new to clock spinning, uh, clock spinning, as we said, is a podcast in Magic's history. So what does that mean? Uh, it means that you join us in the midst of a card by card review of the original Champions of Kamigawa set. Uh, so we've done all the white cards, all the blue cards, all the black cards, all the red cards, all the green cards, and today we're reviewing the twenty artifacts of Champions of Kamigawa. The goal here is to review them for cubes. So as a sort of framing device, we're building a set cube of Kamigawa block. If you go back to our first episode, we have a quick explanation of our rating system, which we call the IMPAB, patent pending rating system. But we also want to get into the history, talk about the art, talk about where cards fit into the history of magic, talk about cards that we think are funny or dumb or cool or otherwise notable in some way, talk a little bit about how they see play in EDH and cube and other environments, uh, and just generally give cards that are amazing and cards that are Maybe more forgettable, uh, their time in the sun. Well put. Uh, oh, and if you, uh, for some reason, have not memorized uh, what cards like Generals Kabuto or Hairstrung Koto or Honor Worn Shaku um, do, there will be a link in the show notes that pulls up a Scryfall search with all the cards we talked about today. So recommend clicking on that so you can follow along. Mm-hmm. Well, if you haven't memorized those cards yet, you know, get it together. This is <laughs> This is important stuff. This is an important part of not just the history of magic, but I, w- I would argue the history of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, should we dive into that history? Yeah, I think so. So first up is General's Kabuto. No, it's not the Pokemon. General's Kabuto is a four mana artifact equipment. Equipped creature has shroud. Prevent all combat damage that will be dealt to equipped creature. Equip two. So four mana to make a thing more or less untouchable. Uh, So the first mildly interesting note I had on this is it's pretty weird that there's like 20 artifacts in the set. And the first one starts with G alphabetically. I just thought that was weird. That is kind of strange. It it feels wrong to start on General's Kabuto. Yeah, I I kept actually kind of scrolling through the spreadsheet here. Like, did I miss a card or like, nope, it just starts on G. So that's kind of funny. I thought that You'd hidden some rows or something. This card is, I actually don't know. I think it's either a non-entity, like it's just terrible uh, because it's an equipment that costs six mana to get started and doesn't change stats at all. And thinking it might even be oppressive. I I worry Hmm. the effect here is kind of unfun. Like there's not a lot of removal in the environment. There's certainly not removal that can really dodge shroud plus no combat damage. So like throwing this on a dragon or a Moskami seems like, pretty rough but then six mana is a lot to pay so maybe it's fine to let someone kind of run you over with the once they've gotten to this six mana mark what do you think yeah i mean i i agree about the unfun concerns but i think the cost of this is just so high especially if if you are putting it on your moskami or on a dragon you know you're putting six mana into the creature six mana into the kabuto to get it on a creature that is just a lot you'd be really lucky to have a moskami or a spirit dragon to put this on you know what if what if you just have a devoted retainer <laughs> well that's kind of a worst case scenario i mean <laughs> it could happen in this set yeah, it definitely could you're right that there are a lot of like tutus 
uh, that this could end up sitting on, which is not where you want to be for a six mana investment. It requires you not just to have a creature, uh, but to have one that actually matters, either has an ability that you want to keep in the game by protecting it with this, or, uh, you know, as a, a big buff creature that you want to have deal with your opponent's board or something. Like, you need to have a relevant creature and the Kabuto to make this matter. Yeah, I guess I'm less discouraged by that than you are. I mean, this is a very creature-centric set, like, you know, most limited environments. I think the fact that it's only two to equip is pretty nice. You know, if the numbers were reversed here, I think I'd dislike this a lot more. But the fact that you can kind of pretty reliably shuffle this around so it's always sitting on your best threat, I think that's uh, that's fairly powerful. Yeah, I guess that's worth something. I, I noticed looking at the first few artifacts in the set, I'm like, wow, there's a rare, a rare, uncommon, uncommon. And I kept scrolling and I realized that every single artifact in this set is either uncommon or rare. Oh, uh, interesting. And I had never noticed that before. I never thought about it. Fun little Kamigawa tidbit. Yeah, it kind of checks out. I think it fits a little bit with Wizards' philosophy back in these days. They, they had to really clearly separate the design and flavor of each set. You know, like this follows Mirrodin, right, which is the artifact block. You know, it's incredibly high density of artifacts. And I wonder if they just said, yeah, we're going to turn the dial pretty far back here to make artifacts feel special again. You know, another example would be, you know, Ravnica is the first big gold set in many, many years, first multicolor set in many years. Uh, they basically didn't print any multicolored cards for like three years preceding that. Like, or uh, Onslaught block has, I think, one or two. Mirrodin has, I believe, zero. And then this block has one or two. I feel like today they just like, they would never keep any tool in their toolbox for three years like that. Right. That's just not how modern magic is designed. But I think that I uh, I heard Mark Rosewater on his Drive to Work podcast once talking about this uh, back in this era of magic and and before this era. There was, there was sort of this mindset that mechanics need to be saved a little bit, that you need to hold on to hold on to some ideas, keep some arrows in your quiver, you know, save these great ideas for a future set. <laughs> so you might just run out of ideas to print. I feel like that's really informing the the artifacts here as being like uncommon and rare and also not to spoil too much, but not too good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It feels like there's, there's sort of, they're holding back on the artifacts, they're holding back on multicolored cards, recovering from Mirrodin and maybe gearing up for Ravnica. Yeah, the, the cost thing is real. I think it's less conspicuous with here, with this card, but watch as we go through the cast and or equip costs on these artifacts. Almost every one of them feels like it's got one or even two generic mana attacked onto it. My theory about this, and I have no evidence for this, it's just my pet theory after rereading the spoiler, is that Wizards was scared after Mirrodin and basically pumped up the cost of every single artifact in this set just to try to mitigate the the competitive impact of Mirrodin. Um, so if you're not familiar, mm -hmm. the original Mirrodin block was one of the most broken formats in the history of Magic, probably top three most broken formats ever. And Wizards spent basically a year in extreme damage control mode trying to make up for it. Uh, and so I, my theory is they just didn't want any of these artifacts to enhance the already obnoxiously oppressive uh, artifact decks that were just hounding standard. No, I think they succeeded at that. <laughs> they really did. Yeah, this is this one looks pretty uh pretty affordable by comparison. It really does and and pretty powerful too. Yeah, speaking of affordability, this is uh this card is weirdly $8. It's never been reprinted. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to see much EDH play. It's only in 1300 decks on EDH rec. So I can only assume that's accounted for by like really casual commander play and like Voltron decks or something. Can't say I've ever seen this card in play, but I don't mind it. I think it's kind of fun. Maybe maybe that is Pokemon card collectors thinking that this is the Pokemon Kabuto. Okay. 
It makes as much sense as anything else. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, let's go with that. Uh, how many of these do you want in the cube, Connor? I had this at a meh 1x uh, just because I thought this will probably be fine. Yeah, I mean, it, it can't be more than one. <laughs> no, definitely. I, I also said meh 1x. Great. Next up, we've got Hairstrung Koto. Six mana artifact. Tap an untapped creature you control. Target player puts the top card of his or her library into his or her graveyard. So, mills a card. Another artifact that needs six mana to do anything, except this one just straight up costs six mana. It actually barely does anything. (laughs) For me, this was like a classic example of a card that would have confused the young Connor when we first started playing this game. This card seems like it, it, it must have some purpose. Like there must be some deck you could put together that would make this cool and relevant. It's a rare, so it seems like the kind of card you might want to build your deck around a little bit. It seems like there must be some kind of purpose there, but there, I just don't think that there is, even in a mill deck, because you're not going to have you know, a ton of creatures sitting around. And if you do have a ton of creatures sitting around in your deck, you're, you're not going to want to use those to mill your opponent. An, an interesting idea, an expensive idea, uh, and one that I just don't think goes anywhere. Yeah, I think this is a good example of maybe where they tacked a couple mana on something just to be safe. Yeah. The the one card milled per creature tapped here is just pretty brutal. Like, let's say you have five creatures. You drop this on roughly turn seven, you know, which is about when you can expect to play a six drop. Um, So your opponent has, let's say, 25 cards left in their deck. That's like a five turn clock if you settle into a purely defensive turtling, tap all your creatures down at the end of each of their turns. That's not nothing, but it's also, it's not particularly impressing me. You know, that amount of mana invested for such a, for no board impact and a pretty like marginal game winning uh, scenario. Uh, I think what is is especially frustrating to me about this is there's a, a card we talked about in blue many episodes ago now called Dampen Thought that mills four cards and it's, it's arcane, it splices onto arcane. And uh, we had some listeners propose these really cool ideas for uh, an arcane focused kind of dampened thought mill deck um so there is a little bit of milling going on in kamigawa a very little bit a very little bit and Hairstrong kodo does not fit into that dampened thought archetype at all because you're not going to have a lot of creatures that you're able to tap down that's true there was a pet theory or a fan theory back then that wizards had something against rebecca gway and this is a classic example where Gwei turns in what I think is just one of the best pieces of art in the entire set. It's um, it's this woman in a traditional dress playing a, what I assume is a kodo, basically a stringed instrument, um, surrounded by swans and kind of sitting in a field. And it looks very peaceful until you uh, notice a few seconds later that the hand that's playing the koto seems to be getting kind of shredded by the strings of the instrument and she's covered in blood. It's very serene and very disturbing. It's a really, really fantastic piece. And they stuck it on this kind of dog of a card. And this is a pattern that seems to happen over and over to Rebecca Gway. Like if you look at her pieces in this set, they're all terrible. It's very frustrating as a fan of her art to see so many of her cards get attached to these just garbage cards like this or like Joyous Respite. Yeah, this one's especially painful. So I, I see you have this as an Instacut, right? Yep. I have this as a build around, which I think this card is kind of tolerable. Like my scenario of it lets you close out the game guaranteed in five turns. As I thought about that, I kind of liked it. Like, I don't think it's good, but I think it's the kind of thing some player will set themselves a little challenge with of like, you know, getting the green Honda in there, getting other kind of cheap creatures and defensive creatures in there. Like, uh, I don't know. It seemed kind of fun to me. 
I do think that's a little too optimistic, having five creatures and being able to use them all for this. Well, uh, why? Hold on. Why is that optimistic? Isn't it just you sit back and wait for your opponent to attack, you block with them, you tap them down, and you just keep repeating that, and your opponent gradually tears their hair out, hair strong Kodo, uh-huh. tears their hair out in frustration. Yeah. And and then confronting you, their inevitable finger bleeding. And then you s- use that to string your next Kodo. The next Kodo. The sort of deck that you just proposed, using like the Honden to get a bunch of spirit tokens you're not going to be able to just keep blocking your opponent with that right they're gonna die but i'm making connor i have the green haunt and i literally make one spirit every turn uh-huh for free so then so you you block with your free spirits and then you tap them to mill one one and then the next turn and then the next turn you do it again yes and then you mill another one yes and you got a clock baby you got sort of a clock going. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's pretty marginal. I just think it's, I don't know, it sounds like a fun challenge for someone who wants to play a bad but fun deck. I think it sounds kind of fun. Okay, I'm I'm willing to try it. What if we write on Sharpie, bad but fun deck on the card? Uh, in, in Cube Cobra? Yeah, I think they have a Sharpie feature in Cube okay. Cobra in the latest update. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to them. I'll file a feature request on GitHub. One other thing is, as much as I love the art, I'm really struggling to connect the name Hairstrung Kodo, the art, and the effect here. Like, in what way does tapping by creatures represent stringing a Kodo with bloody fingers to mill my opponent? Like, that that's not really connecting for me. <laughs> Maybe your creatures are these herons behind her in the field. Okay. And they just keep screeching. That's them tapping. That would be annoying. And then this woman who, according to the flavor text, is losing her mind, is milling cards out of her brain. Oh, she's my opponent. Yeah. Okay. You're for yeah, you're forcing her to play this Koto. I can I can accept that. Uh can you accept a build around one? I think I can. Excellent. Uh let's go to a card that may challenge our evaluation skills a little less. Honk you. One for an artifact equipment. Equip four. Equipped creature has tap. Put an aim counter on Honkyu and tap, remove all aim counters from Honkyu. This creature deals damage to any target equal to the number of aim counters removed. So one mana, four mana to equip artifact that lets you tap to put counters on it and then remove all the counters with another tap on the creature to deal damage equal to the number of counters removed. To say that I've always hated this card is an understatement. I have always just loathed this card. It's just so frustrating to read. It reads like a fun effect. And then you get to that equip four and it's just like, oh my gosh, it's like stomping on my toes, you know, with its with its hatefulness. Like, it's just so frustrating. Like if this was equipped two, it would still be plenty expensive, but it would let you start chaining it together and get your brain mumble, you know, brain mumbling. Get it mumbling, yeah. Grain but what do brains do, Connor? Do they rumble? Can I say rumbling with with the possibilities? <laughs> sure, sure. That's. I mean, that's what my brain is doing when I look at these Get cards. Get your brain grumble, mumble, lumbling with possibilities. But at four, I, I feel like all possibilities are foreclosed by this equip cost. I hate this card. I don't feel quite as strongly as you do. I'm not. I'm not sure that would be possible. <laughs> the the four mana equip cost definitely bothers me. But I think what I find really upsetting about it is that it forces you to tap the creature. Like, I get I get why it has to do that, being an equipment. Like, it has to interact with the creature somehow. Why can't the artifact tap? Why couldn't the equipped creature tap honk you instead of having to, like, give up all of its usefulness for this effect? It's kind of a weird uh, flavor, too, because it's like, so a honk you is apparently a type of Japanese short bow, I googled it, of the Yumi type of asymmetric bow. Um, and if you look at the art, there's nothing in here that indicates this is like a magical bow. So it's kind of hard to understand why, like, as I'm passing this among my creatures, like what's happening as they exert themselves 
adding aim power to it somehow. And then I remove, like, it's kind of hard to understand what's going on here. Like, are my creatures aiming? They're all like, they're in a conference center together, aiming over the course of like four turns before they fire a shot. Like, I don't really get what's happening here. Well, that's the, that's the problem. I want the conference center approach. So uh, I hate this card. I want to insta-cut it from the cube. Do you agree? Yeah, it's... Okay, I did find one person who found a cool use for this on Gatherer, which is playing it with creatures with infect so that it can deal poison counters instead of just damage. And then a card from the second Mirrodin block called Pure Steel Paladin, which is, uh, he's got various other abilities, but the important one is that he makes all your equip costs zero mana. So mm-hmm. then you could pass the honk you around for free among all your creatures with infect and potentially get like a quick kill. And I thought that was a pretty cute idea. Okay, I like that. But we don't have pure steel paladin in this cube. No, or in fact. <laughs> One other gatherer comment while I'm sharing gatherer comments. Uh, Nuck Chorus, uh, I love how 2010 that name is. Nuck Chorus wrote, take a good look at this card. It's a very rare type of card. If you didn't catch it, it's one of the few not good cards of the Kamigawa block. And that amused me. <laughs> okay, Instacut. All right, next up we've got Honor Worn Shaku. Three mana artifact. Tap, add one to your mana pool. And you can tap an untapped legendary permanent you control to untap Honor Worn Shaku. I feel like I'm missing something when I look at this card. Like it, <laughs> like there's some there's some combo I'm not thinking of. There's some potential that I'm not seeing. I don't think this card does anything in a Kamigawa cube. No. Am I wrong? No, but I did question myself in the way I hear you questioning yourself. Like, I feel like four cards in, I'm already like, do I just have no ability to rate cards? Surely all these artifacts aren't as bad as I think. You know, it's like I, I'm starting to get Stockholm Syndrome already, but I, I don't know. So if I if I ignore the context of Kamigawa Block Cube and all the, you know, complexities of that environment and just think about this card on its own. We know from much EDH and limited and cube examples that three mana rocks are pretty marginal in any environment. Like they're just barely good enough in kind of slower commander or low power commander. They're just barely good enough in low power cube. And they're just barely good enough to be your 23rd card in a sealed deck. Like they're not that good. And then you take one that can only tap for colorless mana. And I think that's a pretty huge additional deficit like this doesn't help you fix which i think is one of the big problems in kamigawa there's just not a lot of mana fixing so i feel like this just doesn't help you very much and this cute little ability to tap and untap legendary permanent i think actually does some cool things i'll talk about those in a second but i don't know that it's going to do those cool things in our a cube environment even if you are getting some mana out of this more than one a turn uh there's not all that much <laughs> to be doing with it with a bunch of colorless mana yeah I do uh, like that there's kind of a tie-in, like a flavor tie-in between this card and Konda way back to episode one. So Konda, Lord of Eganjo, is the emperor of this this human realm of Eganjo. Uh, and you can see in his art that he's holding something that looks like this Shaku. I don't know if, it is, if it's this exact honor-worn Shaku. I assume that Konda's is also worn out by honor from all his years of lording. <laughs> but I just kind of I just kind of like like the tie there. That's a good moment to pause and wonder how a shaku gets worn out because I'm sure this is some traditional part of Japanese culture so forgive me but to be honest it's hard to look at this as anything but a purple lightning spanking paddle when you look at the art <laughs> like it just looks like a spanking paddle. Oh no. It's a super ridiculous art. Oh, why did you have to talk about it being worn out? 
<laughs> it is worn. It says right in the name, Honor Worn. It's worn out by honor, though, <laughs> not by paddling. Yeah, how do you earn the honor, Connor? Uh, the art is funny here. Like, A, I think it's dumb. But like, B, it's it kind of reminds me of old school, like alpha, not quite alpha in terms of its technical implementation, but it's got that old school magic look of just like object. Magical effect. No background. <laughs> it really does. It's so straightforward in a way. I almost like it. I don't really like it, but I almost like it for being that straightforward. It does. I, I sort of get those vibes from a lot of equipment, not just in Kamigawa, but maybe especially in Kamigawa, uh, of here is equipment. It is on a background. That's true, because the funny thing with equipment is like there's a tough artistic line to walk where you don't want to forefront the creature too much or, or the thing wearing it, because then it starts looking like a creature. Yeah. So you've got to make it about the gear. You know, maybe maybe that is one good thing to say about Honkyu is it does have a creature, a human, holding the bow and the arrows. It doesn't have the same problem as the Shaku here. That's true. And yet it's also incredibly clear that the focus of the art is the bow, not the person. That's a good point. Exactly. Yeah. There are a lot of co- gatherer comments about spanking for this, and I won't read you all of them, but I did get a kick out of Bastion QOU saying, I enjoy the thought of a bunch of legendary people spanking everyone they know to provide energy to their planeswalker in chief. I thought that was a funny <laughs> image. <laughs> that must be what they're doing. Two other notes on this before we get to um, its place in our cube. One, this bizarrely won a Grand Prix championship in 2005. It was like a key element of a Grand Prix winning deck, which I find really hard to credit um, in Japan. And the theme of the deck was a sort of very funky white blue prison deck where all the creatures in the deck are legendary for synergy with the Honor Worn Shaku. And it uses Hokori Dust Drinker, who stops lands from untapping, to lock your opponent out of untapping their lands. And then your uses Honor Worn Shaku to let you keep tapping for some amount of mana to not get locked under your own prison. It's super weird. I, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I highly recommend looking at it if you're into funky Johnny decks. Wow, that sounds super obnoxious. Well, it looks obnoxious, but also I suspect it's like way too inconsistent to like, I don't think this then went on to like take over type two. You know what I mean? It was like a weird one off thing. Yeah. And then one other note is this sees a surprising amount of play in EDH. It shows up in 6,000 decks. Uh, It has some fun interactions with commanders like King Makar, who has inspired, meaning he wants to be untapped and he has an effect when he does it. Or Norin the Wary. Imara, Soul of the Accord, another tapped commander. This sees a surprising amount of play in kind of quirky commander decks centered around tapping and untapping your commander or around kind of legendary tribal like Arvod the Cursed or Reiki History of Kamigawa. It's kind of fun. How many of these, Connor? I think zero. <laughs> I agree. So if I go back to uh, Hairstrung Kodo, I think that card is probably even worse than this card, but at least is kind of interesting. It tickles my brain. I feel like this is just like, a bad mana paddle. You can imagine some scenario where, you know, you put together a deck in the cube where this ends up being kind of useful or maybe a little bit relevant, but it's just not not very interesting. Yeah, because like the exciting scenarios are you got two colorless mana out of it. Whoa. I don't know if I can handle, you know, all the spanking jokes. Yeah, just, just between us. Let's cut it. Insta cut. Let's move on to maybe the easiest Instacut of any of our uh, 10 episodes so far, not to bias you, um, but the card we're going to talk about next is Emi Statue. Three mana for an artifact. Players can't untap more than one artifact during their untap steps. That's it. Uh, so this is an obvious Instacut to the cube. I don't think we even need to talk about that. There are like only three artifacts to tap in this whole set. We don't need to anything to nerf them. I think it's more interesting to talk about like 
why this exists. And the reason this exists, according to uh, Wizards article that I'll link from the show notes, was a really blunt attempt to try to tamp down the power of Mirrodin block um, by just making artifacts as unplayable as possible. And apparently this is also why cranial extraction exists. Um, this is why Samurai of the Pale Curtain exists. This is why Hirobi exists. This is why Knight of Souls Betrayal exists. All these cards are in there uh, in an attempt to hose Mirrodin block. And spoiler alert, none of that works. <laughs> they admitted in February 2005, so about six months after this set came out, or five months, that that wasn't working and that the cards and betrayers also weren't working and said that they would take action. And then a few weeks later, they followed up with what I believe is still the largest round of standard banning in history, where they banned eight cards from standard all in one go. Ravager, um, Disciple, The Vault, and all of the artifact lands picked up a ban. Uh, but I think it's kind of fun to see this card in that context as like a little bit of magic history, even as it is a terrible card for our cube. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And it actually makes a lot more sense reading it in that context because it's just it's baffling just by itself as a rare artifact in Kamigawa. I don't know that we have a, a running record of this, but I think that this would probably be my number one for most disappointing rare you could possibly pull from a Kamigawa pack. <laughs> it's got to be pretty high on the list. I'll go back and look while you talk, but I can't think of one that beats it. It does not get much worse than this. What I am most bothered about with Emi statue is that it's kind of a waste of cool art and flavor text. Like the art here actually looks kind of like something from Mirrodin. It's like a statue of a, a man sort of holding his head in his hands with this, I guess, owl perched on top of him. So that's all a statue. And then it's in this very Mirrodin-esque sort of spiky wasteland. Pretty cool, sinister looking art. And then the flavor text is also pretty cool and makes sense with the ability it says just looking at it fills me with dread yet since it arrived i've done little else my blades have dulled and my business has failed and still i cannot look away keisaku master sword maker yeah i love that so good that flavor text is so good and it, it matches the effect here right we've got this sword maker who his his livelihood is dealing in artifacts and he can't do it anymore since this statue showed up he's just captivated by it yeah to your point of most disappointing rare i think there's three that give it competition i won't go into these but if anyone wants to look them up i think vassal's duty in white pretty mm -hmm. close that's the one that redirects mm -hmm. damage to legendary creatures i think swirl the mist uh blue man blue four mana enchantment that changes color yep. words is pretty yep. disappointing yep, yep. <laughs> uh and i think mind blaze in red, the six mana sorcery that sometimes deals eight damage is also pretty disappointing. Oh, we talked at length about how much we both hate Mind Blaze, but I think I would be happier to get Mind Blaze. I have a Mind Blaze, and I think I probably was happier to get that than Emi Statue, because at least Mind Blaze says damage on it. It at least has an effect on a typical game of magic, or can sometimes, and sometimes doesn't. One other little bit of trivia on this, we're going to have three show notes links for this unplayable card, which I think is funny. But one other little bit of ancient trivia on this, there's a rather wonderful article by uh, Zvi Mashevitz, the um, magic pro who wrote a lot for Wizards at this time. I think he was a developer or something um, at this point. Lists this on a list of honorable mentions of coolest artifacts in magic from recent sets. Um, wow. So this is listed, this is listed above Sensei's Defining Top as the coolest artifact in the in this set. Wow. I can't help but notice from the, just the dates in the URLs from your notes here that 
Zvi's article was published several weeks after Aaron Forsyth admitting <laughs> that this card didn't work. It is, yes, and by which time, I don't know, but I assume people had started to realize the top was a really stupid magic card. By then, like, I just, I find it yeah. inexplicable to put Emi's statue on a list that all, let me read you some other cards on the list of top artifacts. Umizawa's Jite, Cranial Plating, Skull Clamp, Chrome Mox, and then amidst those five, we have Emi's statue. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Wow, but let's get this out of here. Yeah, let's call that an instant cut. Okay, another, uh, I'd say strong candidate for instant cut here. Jade Idol, four mana for an artifact. Whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, Jade Idol becomes a 4-4 spirit artifact creature until end of turn. So I really wavered between instant cut and meh. Kind of my first reaction was, oh, it's a spirit craft trigger because it says when whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell. And then I sort of realized that the spirit craft payout that you get here is to temporarily have a creature that is basically on rate. <laughs> if, if this were just a four mana four four, that wouldn't be crazy by modern magic standards, uh, even as an artifact creature. But because you're paying four mana to play this, the first turn that you're going to get any trigger out of it is on turn five, right? Probably more like turn six. Uh, meanwhile, the Jade Idol was sitting there doing nothing but looking nice. So <laughs> I ended up settling on Instacut because I think this just, I mean, it literally does nothing most of the time and then occasionally becomes a creature that uh, also does nothing. Yeah, one of our listeners, uh, Tap Tap, commented on a previous episode in passing that this card is crappy, quote unquote, um, and doesn't provide enough pressure. And that checks out for me. I think in general, to be honest, that Spiritcraft has disappointed me a lot of times. Uh, it's really hard to get the triggers consistently enough to the point where you can guarantee it. And so I think you have to look at them as a bonus on cards that otherwise are pretty close to making the grade. And of course, this card isn't that, right? It's like without a Spiritcraft trigger, this is literally... A four mana do nothing card. It literally has no effect on the board. So a card that lives and dies by its spirit craft trigger. And then when it does trigger becomes okay creature. I mean, four, four is decent. It's not bad. Don't get me wrong, but it's not, it's not game breaking even in Kamigawa. Do you think that this could maybe be something if it costs three so that you could play it on yeah. turn three and then trigger it on turn four and have, you know, a, a turn four, 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 that seems like there could be something there. I think it would probably be bad-ish still, but I think at least then you would be sort of definitively beating on rate. And it's therefore starts to become more worth putting the work in. But at this point, it's like, I'd much rather have an Order of the Sacred Bell, you know, vanilla four mana, four three than this card. Um, I'd much rather have like a gibbering Kami, you know, a two, two flyer with soul shift three than this card. Like, I think almost every color is going to have some kind of four drop that even though it might be mediocre is still better than this card. Yeah. What do you think of the art? You know, it, it exists. Okay. What do you think? I think it's 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 inoffensive. It's neither great nor bad. It's, uh, I think it's kind of cool. The The background's a little dull, and honestly, it looks a little like Mayan or Aztec, just from the little bit of whatever staircase we're seeing in the background. But I think the statue's kind of cool. Looking. I also feel like the background's kind of Aztec. I guess it's just because of the pyramid and the steps. This card is a reference back to uh, Jade's statue all the way back in Alpha, um, which is the original animating artifact creature which honestly is not a good card, but might, might somehow be better than this card because at least that can become a creature whenever you want. So Jade Statue is a four mana for an artifact that for two mana can become a three six until end of combat. I don't think that's amazing, but I think I'd probably take it over this. 
Yeah, boy, that's kind of a, a strange ability when you read it out like that, like until end of combat. Yeah, I think it's probably they're trying to interpret original alpha text. It's actually even weirder. The original alpha rule was two, Jade statue becomes a creature for the duration of the current attack exchange. Can be wow. a creature only during attack or defense. <laughs> I love that. Which leaves a lot open to interpretation. It sure does. Attack or defense. Attack or defense. Um, one more damning thing about this card is I've looked at a gatherer page for basically every card we've reviewed. And even the most terrible card always has two or more pages of comments. This card has just two comments on gatherer. Like no one could even be bothered to comment on it because it just it's not a card that inspires anything. What was uh what did Emi statue look like? Uh that's a great question. I think it had more. I think partially because it's a little bit of a meme card and partially because there's probably 400 other people who are as excited as I was to tell people why this exists. Um yeah, so there's uh there's like 15 comments on Gatherer for Emi or 12 comments. That's not bad. Someone who misread the name, someone who said this was hyped for affinity and didn't work, someone who says use it with mycosynth lattice for maximum annoyance, which is actually really funny. Yeah, so there, there's some stuff in here. Poor Jade Idol. Uh, Instacut, right? Yep. All right. Let's go to Journeyer's Kite. Two mana for an artifact. Three and tap. Search your library for a basic land card. Reveal it and put it into your hand. Then shuffle. The rate on these Kamigawa cards is so rough. I mean, we're talking about five. Five mana to get the very first land into your hand on this. Like, I just... I don't know. That's just an obscene cost to ask to get a single land into your hand. It is pretty painful, but I'm I'm sort of inclined to have maybe a couple of these in just as like a mana fixing option in a set that does not have a lot of mana fixing. A couple? Yeah. You're going to have to defend that to me more. Okay. I mean, it costs two mana to get out, right? It's five mana in total to get the first land into your hand, but it's not like you can't play this until you have five mana, right? You can get this out on turn two. And then you can get your land on turn three. Yeah, but if you're stuck on mana, this like this may not help you. What if you're stuck on two? I'm not thinking in terms of like stuck on total mana. I'm thinking more stuck on color of mana. Uh-huh. Maybe you're playing a three color deck. You've only got two colors in your hand and on board, and you need that third land. Journeyer's kite gets you there. Yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. I kind of feel like I want to deal with that by making the mana fixing better, though, like via lands. So I feel like green green has a decent number of options for mana fixing, which of course it should because it's green. And that's kind yep. of green's thing. But I feel like having a, a couple of these Journeyer's Kites in gives non-land options to people who are not in green. And in a way that's like, it's not sort of denying what makes green special. Uh, no, it's certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not competing with a Sakura Tribe Elder or Kodama's Reach, but it's it's there as an option if you really want to go into a three-color deck and one of those colors is not green, then you have this. But you've taken two to three turns off to do this. Like that is, I just don't think you can afford, even in this format, to take two to three turns completely off from affecting the board to get one land. Do you want to just get rid of it completely? Well, I had it as a Maya 1X. I, I don't know exactly why, except, well, I mean, partially because the art is fun. It's fine to have one, or if you really want two of these running around. I don't think any deck wants multiples. I think that's just signing your own death warrant to put two of these in your deck. I'm thinking two so that they show up more in the draft. Not that you want both of them in your deck. As just a bottom of the barrel fixing option. Yeah, I'm okay testing it like that. I'm not stoked about it. I know deck thinning doesn't really matter statistically most of the time, but I do kind of like the idea of gradually winnowing my deck of all its lands. I think that's kind of cool. 
This sees some marginal play in EDH, largely with commanders that care about land or land types, but aren't green. I, I love this. The top commander in terms of percentage of decks that play this is, are you ready for this? Ben Ben Aki Hermit, <laughs> which I think is sort of wonderful. 42% of the 76 decks that play Ben Ben Aki Hermit run this card. Wow. Ben Ben. Yeah, I know. So if you're one of the 58% of Ben Ben Aki Hermit pilots who's not running Journey's Kite, you better check it out. Get on the meta. Okay, so I think we're locked in at meh. Mm-hmm. Are you going to fight for your two? I do want to. At the same time, I'm concerned about how many cards we already have in the cube. But I will say that I'm, I'm not going to go to the mattresses to keep both of these in. Okay, one more question. I- imagine that you know we're getting to the land finally next episode. We intend to include lands from outside the block because the fixing in this just isn't uh, up to my taste as a cube designer. Is it correct to play this over a land in your colors? Like a dual land in your colors? No, I don't think so. Boy. Okay. What if you don't get that dual land? But that to me is a cube design problem where there should be enough dual lands that you have a chance of picking up at least a couple in your colors. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll leave it in. I'm, I'm going to make you choose 2X or 1X. It's... So let's go with two for now. All right. All right. Hopefully this next one will be less divisive. So we've got Junkio Bell. Four mana for an artifact. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may have target creature you control get plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of creatures you control. If you do, sacrifice that creature at end of turn. So the first thing that struck me about this card is that it is not a legendary artifact. That's really weird. It seems very, very strange to me because there are other cards in this set that refer to this bell as uh, sort of a, a central... I can't really say figure, it is, but there is an order of the sacred bell. This is the sacred bell, and it's not legendary. Apparently, there are multiple bells, and you can have as many bells as you want floating around. They're not that special. Well, I can see why, because they don't seem like a very... It doesn't seem like a great idea to worship this bell or to care for it when it asks to eat your creatures. Well, it gets it gets painful. It demands a lot of a lot from its followers. How is the bell leading to that effect, incidentally? Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on with this bell that makes a creature big according to the number of worshippers of the bell and then that creature dies? That's a great question. Is that why the its monks are so swole? It's like pumping them full of steroids or something? I think so. Well, the, the swollest monk in the art is the one ringing the bell. So he's he must be the one getting the plus X, plus X, and then... Yeah. He's going to die at the end of the turn. Wow. All these other monks are just sort of silently cheering him on, hoping that they're not next. I find it like a lot of these fairly forgettable in terms of effect and a little too down in power to matter, even in this set's context. I think if this gave plus X, plus X and trample, my ears would be totally perked up. But as it is, it's kind of like, it's just a yawner. Like I literally yawned thinking about this. And it's another it's another card that demands that you have a lot of creatures for it to do much of anything. Um, and I just don't know how often that board state is going to exist in this cube. One other thing I wanted to throw in about this card, the second thing I noticed or remembered about it was that this was included as one of the two rares in the Champions of Kamigawa green snake no. theme deck. Yes. No. Your two rares that you got in this snake theme deck, which I bought, were Junkio Bell and Arachi Hatchery. Oh no, really? You did not get a rare snake. <laughs> There's like three rare snakes. <laughs> yes, you didn't get Seshiro. You got Seshiro's two uncommon children. Oh, come on. Not 
not a single rare snake in that theme deck. You got Junkio Bell and Arachi Hatchery. <laughs> That's appalling. Yeah, so I, I'm pretty sore about that. Why are the rares in that deck two artifacts? That's bizarre. Yeah, frustrating, right? It felt like there was some conscious decision there to put these two just random bad artifacts into this deck as your two rares, because you only get two rares in a theme deck, at least back then. They picked those two so that you'd have this snake deck that was incomplete without Seshiro. Wow. So then you got to go out and buy packs until you pull Seshiro. Yeah, I don't know exactly what they put in modern theme decks, but the last time I bought some to teach a friend to play Magic, uh, you know, they were fronted by like kind of off-brand versions of the set Planeswalker, like take the set Planeswalker, tack on a couple mana, give it splashy, but more mediocre effects. And that was a lot more fun because at least you look at that and go, whoa, that's a cool card. Like, honestly, if you didn't know the rarity symbols, I don't think you'd even look at this card and say, this is the most special and exciting card in my deck. That would be the snake people. Like, this absolutely should have been Seshiro's. Like, oh, this guy is the best of the snake people. Plus two, plus two. That's amazing. So back then, like, the theme deck boxes didn't have the little plastic window in the front where you can see the card that is sort of being highlighted as the centerpiece of the deck. (laughs) It's just, it was just a cardboard box. Maybe that was intentional. Right. So I really wonder if that deck was put into a modern deck box that does have that little window. What card is going to be on the front of that deck? Well, I think what was actually on the front of it was like one of the stakes. But imagine if the front of the deck box was just this bell, just this bell with this swole guy. There aren't even snakes in the picture. It'd be it'd be utterly baffling. Yeah, well, that that's what I mean. If you had to if you had to pick a card to put on the top of the deck to be like, this is the deck that you're buying. It's not going to be Junkyo Bell. Yeah, that's pretty weird. Uh, anyway, I think this is an Instacut, right? Yeah, we've we've given it plenty of time. It's an Instacut. All right, great. Let's move on to Conda's Banner. Two for a legendary artifact equipment. Conda's Banner can be attached only to a legendary creature. Equip two. Creatures that share a color with the equipped creature get plus one, plus one. Creatures that share a creature type with the equipped creature get plus one, plus one. This is a super cool card. Uh, The first thing I'll note, which I hadn't realized at first, is that This will buff the creature itself because it shares a color with the equipped creature. It shares a creature type. Now, does that make sense? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's pretty darn good. So off the baseline, you're giving the equipped creature plus two, plus two, which two and two to play, two to equip is just about on rate, maybe a teeny bit below. Um, If you have even one or two other creatures to benefit from this, this starts to get look pretty good. And if you have like seven creatures to benefit from this, this looks insanely good. I I really like this card. But I see that you have it as an insta-cut. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I I was quietly clicking on it to change it to playable 1x as you were talking. Uh, There you go. See, I I felt like this is at least a map, potentially a playable. I think that the, the rate is perfectly acceptable two mana to play it two mana to equip it it buffs the creature there's a, i think a decent chance you're gonna buff at least one other thing if only from the color i will say that it has the downside of sort of the old style of lord effect where the buff that is given by this card applies to all creatures not to creatures <laughs> yeah. you control yeah so if your opponent happens to be in the same color or colors as you or happens to also have a samurai and this is equipped to a samurai they're going to get that plus one plus one as well yeah there's going to be some real feel bads where you i don't know equip this to a like a red samurai or a white samurai let's say and then you find out your opponent actually committed more to samurai than you do and it's actually benefiting them more than you 
but that's a pretty funny feel bad. Like <laughs> I'm willing to live with with that situation coming up. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense that the banner buffs the creature it's equipped to. It also does not make a ton of sense that it buffs your enemy's creatures. But we won't we won't look into that too far. It's very orange. This is like a, some incredibly orange art. This may be one of the orangest pieces in Magic history. I think so. It's literally, this is like, there was another piece we talked about, a couple of the green cards I remember, like one of um, Sosuke was one where it was like, this is entirely green, but actually Sosuke is nowhere near as green as this is orange. This is literally 100% orange. There is no color except orange uh, in the art. Yeah. Which I'm fine with. Yeah, it works. This is another one of those cards where I feel like I'm a little bummed that Magic's two premier casual formats, which I would define as EDH and Cube, Neither of them really have room for this card. Like EDH doesn't care that much about plus two, plus two, and also really likes your deck to be multicolored, uh, whereas this shines best in kind of monocolored or close to monocolored decks. And cubes, similarly, like most cubes are not that heavily tribal. They're not that heavily focused on multi monocolored strategies. This is another one of these cool designs that I think kind of falls through the cracks. And if there was some casual 60 card magic format, I feel like you'd see this thing all the time. I think this would show up in tons and tons of fun, casual tribal decks. Yeah, though we we should point out another emphasize another drawback of this, which is that it can only be attached to a legendary creature. Yeah, that's a huge drawback. It's true. So that's that's something to keep in mind. Um, so where where'd you land on this in terms of numbers? So I I think one. You know, it's going to be too hard to try to get this equipped to anything, and having having more than one of it is just feels wrong. And it's legendary. Yeah, I wonder how many legendary creatures we have in the cube right now. Let me just go look. So currently, and of course we haven't gone through Betrayers or Saviors, we have 354 creatures out of 658. Um, That's not very many creatures, but I think we'll be altering that as we go through and continue to cut bad creatures. So it's about 50% creatures. Of those 354, we have 104 creatures. So a little under a third of your creatures are legendary. So you got a pretty good shot at getting a couple of things you can equip this to. There's enough going on for us to have one copy of this. Yeah, I, I can live with that. I'll go up, come up from my Instacut to a, to a meh, maybe? Yeah. Meh 1x. Okay, we've got another equipment coming up here. Kusari Gama. Three mana for an equipment. Equipped creature has pay two colorless mana. This creature gets plus one, plus oh until end of turn. Whenever the equipped creature deals damage to a blocking creature, Kusari Gama deals that much damage to each other creature defending player controls, and the equip cost is three. This is a pretty cool card in theory. Basically what it does is it lets the equipped creature deal damage to all of your opponent's creatures whenever it's blocked. It also has this you know, pay some colorless mana to get a, a power buff so you can make that pain spreading a little bit more relevant. But if you think about this in practice, it just seems really terrible to me. You're paying three mana to get it out, another three mana mm-hmm. to equip it, and then two mana for every plus one power you want to get. So to get plus one power and the ability to deal that creature's damage to all of your opponent's creatures, you're paying eight mana, which is the cost of a myogen. I think the activated ability to get plus one plus oh is a little bit of a trap here. I think the beginning reading of this card is just three mana to cast, three to three to equip, and essentially the equip reads as like if this creature is blocked, deal damage equal to its power to all creatures controlled by defending player. I don't think that's terrible, honestly. I think it's kind of like a weird, really overpriced artifact 
removal thing. Like, I think it's kind of a weird sideways way to threaten your opponent's board and create awkward blocking situations uh, and force them to contend with your biggest threat. And I think that's like, or to let your biggest threat through unblocked, perhaps. I think that's, uh, that's something. It, it is something. <laughs> is is it worth all the all the mana and all the turns and having this card in your deck? Um, barely. I have this at a meh, and I think that's generous. I think this is like just barely at the cusp of meh. I don't, it's hard with these artifacts because there's not that many artifacts in the block. Many of them are bad. So I feel like we're just priced into including a few. Mm-hmm. That said, maybe this one is just too bad. It's like it's pretty elaborate to make this do anything. I feel like it it suffers from the same kind of problem as General's Kabuto, where like the equipment itself doesn't really make the creature better or stronger. It adds a cool ability, but you sort of need to already have a relevant creature to equip this to for this card to matter. Right? Like you're not gonna put this on your devoted retainer, probably. Unless your opponent has a board full of snakes or spirit tokens or something. I think this suffers by comparison with General's Kabuto, because while General's Kabuto doesn't alter the stat line, it does turn something into basically an unanswerable threat. And putting that on, say, uh, to return to our eternal example, Moskami, is a real problem for your opponent. They can't just, it's pretty rare that you'll be able to block a 5-5 with impunity. They're going to have to deal with it at some point. This one more turns it into a single bad hit. I don't know. Now I'm talking myself back into it. Like, I don't know if I, if I take a best case scenario, Connor, and put this on a Moskami and swing into your board of two twos and three threes, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, then, then I just lose, but that is the best case scenario, right? If you, if instead you just have a small snake. Well, even if I put this on like a four, three, like if I put this even on an order of the sacred bell, isn't that still pretty darn powerful blocking that yeah. with anything four damage to each of your creatures is pretty close to a Regeki. Uh, this this pretty much is uh, Reigeki equipment on the right creature. Sorry, I don't know why I'm saying Reigeki. That's a Yu-Gi-Oh card, but... We all know what you mean. Yeah, I think put on any decently sized creature, this says kill between 50 and 100% of your opponent's board. That's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, let's let's talk about the art a little bit. I need... Great. Yeah, let's all talk about the art. Well, first, you want to say what a Kusari Gama is? From my, my brief reading of the Wikipedia article that you found, yep. uh, Kusari Gama is... The original sort of sickle-like weapon of the Kusarigama was made for cutting ropes to release horses if they were in a barn that was on fire. Is that right? <laughs> See, this is good teamwork because I linked this Wikipedia article but didn't read it. So this, this oh, okay. is great teamwork. <laughs> okay, so I, I read two to three sentences from that article. It's an extremely specific tool made for cutting horse ropes in the event of a fire. It could... And I guess was at maybe some point attached to the end of a chain so that it could be swung around with a weight at the end of it so that it could be swung around like we see this Nazumi doing. It does not seem like a very practical weapon. And I think the article pointed out that there's too much of a risk of injuring <laughs> injuring your comrades on the battlefield if you're swinging the sickle around on the end of a chain. But I did notice that there is the, the art of wielding a Kusarigama is referred to as Kusarigama Jutsu. <laughs> That's amazing. I guess it has happened enough times for it to be considered a Jutsu. Yeah, go look one of these up. This is this is a weapon where, honestly, I find it hard to believe it was much used. So it's, it is basically like a sickle, and then a long chain, and then a spiked ball. But it is cool. 
I don't think this art is very cool, though. I feel like the rat in... I just don't like this art style. It's like really kind of thick line, contrasty, bulgy, just kind of 90s comic book. I just, I don't find it very pleasant to look at. I don't dislike the art style, but I dislike pretty much everything else about this. This art sort of confuses and amuses me at the same time. So the the subject, as we've said, is a Nazumi, a rat folk with this weapon in a very, very dramatic pose swinging this weapon around the nazumi appears to be standing on a 1000 foot tall pillar of stone (laughs) or maybe a floating rock like it's standing on like this circle of brown substance which i assume is a rock in the middle of the sky like there is there is no other ground in the background of this this painting it's it's just suspended in the sky and i i i'm very very confused by that i don't know what this rat is doing in the sky instead of in the swamps i don't know of other cards in Kamigawa where mortals are floating around on rocks. There's some kind of giant tree root in the background and yep. some bamboo poles. So I just don't know what's going on here. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, let me drag you back to the difficult question of playability. Are you going to stand by your Instakai? Because I feel like the more I talk uh, about it, the more I think this might actually be good. Are you going up to playable? You know what? Yeah, I'm going up to playable, Connor. I'm going up playable. Okay, all right. I I suppose we can we can land on meh. See, I negotiated you up to meh. Yeah, by changing your position. I'm terrible at this. <laughs> That's a master sales <laughs> technique right there. Uh, uh, it's it's at least an interesting card. I'll give you that. All right, meh for interesting. Okay, let's go to long forgotten gohei. Three mana for an artifact. Arcane spells you play cost one less cast. Spirits you control get plus one, plus one. I think this card is cute. It's like a double spirit kind of anthem effect. I like that it gives one type of bonus to spirits and another type of bonus to arcane spells. It's a nice kind of neat way to tie the two types of spirity things together. I don't think this card is incredible, but I think it's tolerable. I think the tribal bonus is the more significant part here. Honestly, I don't think there's that many scenarios where reducing your arcane spells by one really matters that much. Like I can't imagine putting this in a deck that did not have a bunch of spirits. I think it's more like you put this in a deck with a bunch of spirits and then the arcane spell thing is a nifty bonus every once in a while. Yeah, 100% agree with that. I have this as an auto-include basically because of that spirit bonus. I'll admit that this this could end up kind of being a dead card in some drafts of the cube if you just don't have enough spirits because I agree that you know the arcane spell thing is not Getting this there, I don't think there are that many spells where you care about getting it for one less mana. But just having plus one, plus one for every single spirit, and this is only spirits you control. It doesn't have this Conda's banner problem of applying to all creatures. It's just your own spirits. Like, that's a, a pretty meaningful buff. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a it's a totally meaningful buff. Funnily enough, this card managed to pick up a reprint in Modern Masters, I think, 2015, um, which had a kind of minor spirit, a kind of Kamigawa sub-theme. So you have this as an auto-include. I don't know. To me, auto-include is for the kind of highest echelons of playability, and I don't know that this quite merits that. So your rating is is build-around. Yeah, which doesn't feel quite right either. Like a build-around a build right, I think, is probably more like our Hairstrong Kodo from earlier. You know, it's something you genuinely build a deck and build a cube around. I don't think this is really like a card we build to cube around. It's more like a thing that shows up in your deck in the right circumstances. Right, because the spirits are there. We're not going to, you know, include them or not include them based on the Gohei. 
Yeah, I think if we cut all the spirits, it wouldn't really be a Kamigawa block cube for sure. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a bit of a problem. <laughs> I, I feel like when you're drafting, this is probably a fairly late pick. I think it'd be pretty bold to pick this up near the beginning. Yeah, just because even if you are in the spirit deck, I don't think it's the best card in your deck. I think it's like pretty good. You'd be very happy to get this if you get to the end and realize you have a ton of spirits. Uh, we can go to... Okay, let me imagine cutting this from the cube. Okay, I can't really imagine cutting it. Okay, it can be an auto-include. Okay. Okay, next up, we've got Moon Ring Mirror. I think this will be an easier one for us to decide on. <laughs> Five mana artifact. Whenever you draw a card, remove the top card of your library from the game face down. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may remove your hand from the game face down. If you do, put into your hand all other cards you own removed from the game with Moon Ring Mirror. So kind of a nifty sounding effect. When you draw a card, you the mirror triggers and you you take the top card of your library, set it aside, and you slowly kind of build up this alternate hand that you can switch over to. But this is not the kind of effect that you want to be starting up on turn five of <laughs> yeah. the game. This is the kind of effect you want to start on turn one with a card like Bomat Courier. To be honest, I don't expect Bomat Courier levels of power from Kamigawa cards, right? But uh, this does suffer with by comparison with a bunch of other cards. Like if I compare it to just Mind's Eye in Mirrodin, which is basically pay one mana to draw an extra card per turn when you boil it down. This is like that, but with like 14 extra steps uh, and with the risk that the mirror gets removed and you get no value out of it at all. Like it's it's kind of a cute design. I like the idea that you kind of maintain two hands and you swap between them each turn. Like that creates some fun, interesting games or like kind of a mini game moment for you. I don't think that effect is worth five mana though, even in this set. Yeah, I think it's just, it. it is a cool idea. And I like the sort of the flavor match of like, you know, this mirror creating an alternate hand, an alternate reality that you can swap over to. But I think it's just too slow, you know, by the time you get enough cards exiled that you would want to swap into them, uh, you're on turn eight, turn nine. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Like you're probably, yeah, realistically on turn nine to 10 before you pick up the alternate hand and eh. That's not... Because part of the power of card draw is getting more options, right? I mean, that might sound like kind of forehead slappingly <laughs> obvious, but one of the things you're buying with card draw is more optionality. You've got two cards in hand instead of one, three instead of two, four instead of three, right? Like that additional flexibility to respond to things differently, to play things differently. And this only gets you some of that. It doesn't really get you that full flexibility. Uh, and also, I'm pretty sure the fact that you're exiling these face down means you can't look at them either. I think so. I was I was going to say, speaking of flexibility, like the cards you exile here, you cannot look at and you can only swap at the beginning of your upkeep. Those are some operational challenges for sure. This is this is a pretty easy cut for me. Yeah, it'd be interesting if instead of that, it just let you tap them, tap it, for example. So once per turn cycle, you could flip it, flip your hands around. That would be interesting. Yeah, I, I'm OK just insta cutting this. It helps that the art is kind of like forgettable. Yeah, very. Literally someone looking in a mirror. Well, her, her clothes changed colors. That's true. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Nine Ringed Bow. Nine Ringed Bow is three mana for an artifact. Tap. Nine Ringed Bow deals one damage to target spirit. If that creature would be put into a graveyard this turn, exile it instead. Oh boy. Um. So so I think this card is 
blatantly unplayable. Like if this just said to target creature, it would still be a pretty bad card, but I think it would at least be in the conversation because it could let you add a little bit of damage, mess up combat math for your opponent, act like kind of a Kabuto Moth type effect that just sits out on the board and messes with your opponent's plans. But this just targeting spirits, like this is not reliably impeding the spirit deck enough to be worth a card. Like an outside the spirit deck matchup, this is literally a blank card. It just literally does nothing unless your opponent is committed to spirits. We have seen a lot of weak cards in this set. We've seen a few really cool and a few really strong cards. Yep. And now we are seeing one that should never have been born. <laughs> this is this is just so awful. Uh, it really is just a terrible card. I, I think something that sums up how terrible this card really is it, is this appears in only 15 commander decks, which I think is an all-time low. Wow. Um, and the high synergy cards with it on EDH rec are amazing. This is just like basically a hit list of meme cards. So the number one most synergistic card with it is Break Open, the famously terrible onslaught uh, card that unmorphs morphed cards. Cephalid Snitch, a two mana one one that can be sacked to remove protection from black from a creature. <laughs> um, t- tomb Fire from Odyssey, which is black target player exiles all cards with flashback and his or her graveyard. Uh-huh. Uh, one with nothing from Saviors, uh, maybe the most iconic bad card of all time. Root Cage, I'll just do a couple more of these. Root Cage from Prophecy, one in a G. Mercenaries don't untap during their controllers untap <laughs> steps. Um, <laughs> that's, that's like an EB statue. Yeah, it just keeps going. We got Trap Finder's Trick, which is a hate card for trap cards. Mud Hole from Od- also from Odyssey, which is a, an instant that removes all land cards from a graveyard. It just goes on and on. So I, I think this card... To the extent anyone's ever thought about it, they've only thought about how to put it into a meme, like EDH meme deck of terrible cards. Wow. That's kind of beautiful. (laughs) Isn't it kind of beautiful? I don't normally link to EDH rec because people can just look it up, but I'll link this one just because it's such a great gallery of terrible, terrible cards. We're getting rid of this, right? Oh yeah. No, this is, this is an easy, easy Instacut. This, this is going away forever. Wow. I love root cage. (laughs) Yeah, this is seriously, please. If you have any fondness for bad cards, and if you listen to this podcast, I suspect you do, uh, please look this up because this is just a, a wonderful panoply of terrible cards. <laughs> Alabaster Leech, White Man, <laughs> W for a 1 3 that makes all your white spells cost one more white to play. Like, just goes on and on. Oh, Zephyr Spirit. Zephyr Spirit, yep. This is a, a real star from Ravnica that I remember having so many copies of. 5U for a 0 6 spirit. <laughs> When it blocks, return it to its owner's hand. <laughs> I love Zephyr Spirit. Oh, oh they, no. they don't make cards like this anymore, which is fine. I almost want to do like an episode just on the cards um, that are listed in this page. That sounds fun. They're all like little historical nuggets. Like there's got to be some reason Zephyr Spirit is so bad. And I bet Morrow's talked about it. And then there's cards like Great Wall, two and a W for an enchantment. Creatures with Planeswalk may be blocked as if they did not have Planeswalk. Well, in the entire history of Magic, there are, I believe, something like two cards with Planeswalk. Um, Let me go verify this. But there are so many Planeswalkers. (laughs) That's true. Wizards should errata it to interact with Planeswalkers. Maybe Planeswalk as an ability should be errata to make attacks targeting Planeswalkers unblockable. (laughs) Hey, you know I what? Zephyr Spirit is a spirit. So if you well, had six nine-ringed bows in play, mm-hmm. you could you could exile the Zephyr Spirit. Wow. That's a good point. <laughs> so that's something to think about. <laughs> that's, that is... Well, so the, the limit is four, so you would need some way to, to clone your uh, nine-ringed bows. Yeah, got to make some copies of it. 
which is fine. You know, that's worth doing, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big threat. Okay, so uh, really quickly, let me close the Great Wall loop before we uh, move off of this card forever. Uh, so at the time Great Wall was printed in Legends, uh, there was one creature with Planeswalk in Magic, which was a five mana three one <laughs> with Planeswalk, also printed in Legends. <laughs> and then also in Legends, there was this card, Great Wall, that removes uh, the ability that allows Planeswalk creatures to be blocked. And Lord Magnus who also allows creatures with Planeswalk to be blocked. So there's one creature with Planeswalk at this point in Magic's history and two (laughs) cards that screw over Planeswalking. They must have been really, really worried about this five mana three one. (laughs) Yeah, they're just like, this is is unconscionable. How will white decks ever recover from this? We need to give them the tools they need. Wow. All right. We got a lot out of Nine Ring Bow for being such an unplayable card. We did. A lot more than it deserved. All right. Our next card is Nodachi. Two mana, artifact, equipment, equip three. An equipped creature gets plus two, plus O, oh, and has first strike. So this is some real equipment. It's not super sexy, but seems pretty serviceable to me. You know, it, I saw this, and, you know, I, I sort of use Kitsune Blade Master as the, the measuring stick for all other cards. Yeah, I think that's a settled pattern on this podcast, is everything is either a Kitsune Blade Master or a Moskami. Right, and I, I, I'm i sure that'll continue well past Kamigawa. Oh yeah, in perpetuity. Yeah, yeah, but especially here. Uh, I mean, this is basically uh, like turn anything into KBM, or staple a KBM onto anything. Yeah, and you know what? That's really all I need. Like, as you said, this isn't flashy, but it's just, I think it's just going to do the job most of the time. Kitsune Blademaster wins combats very consistently. He seems like kind of mad when you look at him, you know, a 2-2 with first strike turns into a 3-3 sometimes. But in this format with small creatures, that's enough. And the fact that you can throw this on anything and like turn your best creature into probably an unstoppable killing machine is, I don't know. I mean, that's just really good. There's just no way around it. It's just good. Yeah. The fact that you get the, the plus two... I think is really important here is like this can even turn a one one into something that can trade like pretty efficiently. This is almost I would say the first vanilla artifact we've gotten. Like almost all our previous artifacts, with the exceptions maybe of long forgotten Gohei and maybe Konda's banner, they're all kind of weird. Like they all are yeah. kind of tough to evaluate and sort of puzzling. Whereas I feel like Nodachi is just a solid equipment. It's not going to get any pulses racing, but it's good in, I think, our set cube. It was good in the limited format. And honestly, I think this can make it into like a lower powered other cube. Like if you had a kind of samurai kind of sub theme going on or you hadn't like a, this is sounding a little ridiculous now that I say it aloud, but I feel like this card isn't totally embarrassing even outside Kamigawa. Like if the, if the equip cost here was two, I think this would be really a powerful, well-known card. I think it's just that equip cost of three puts it slightly out of range to be a, a generally playable equipment. Yeah, it's, that's somewhat painful, but definitely good enough for, for this limited format. Yeah, one uh, fun note on this is someone on Gatherer pointed out a synergy with First Strike that I didn't know about, which is that if you give a creature First Strike you actually get priority between the first uh, strike damage step and the normal damage step, which I had no idea of. So if you put this on a creature, you can Hmm. swing in, it goes unblocked, you hit in first strike step, and then you could pick up that creature with ninjutsu, and the ninjutsu creature will connect in the damage step, which I don't know if this matters much. I guess it matters to the Blade Master too, right? Doesn't that seem unintuitive? But yeah, you totally get priority between first strike damage and normal damage to be able to pick it up and swap in a ninjutsu creature. Then you get the damage from both? You get the damage from both, which is which is super weird, but cool. That's pretty good to know. So this is also a ninja enabler. It is. It's a subtle ninja enabler. It's the Nodachi Jutsu. Noja- no, I like it. 
I can't say it apparently. It's it's too hard to say, but I like no dachi jutsu. That's cool. It dies on your lips, but it's <laughs> it's pretty badass. Okay, so I feel like this is playable and I I don't know about one copy. I kind of want two, but Maybe that's too many. I'm torn between... I, I agree with playable. I think it's bordering on auto-include, not because it's iconic or anything, but just because I think it's such a solid role player that it's going to fit in a lot of decks. I think two might be okay here because I think uh, you're not going to put two in one deck because I think it's just a little too expensive. You don't want two of these in play, I think, almost mm-hmm. ever. And in a way, that that might almost mean that having two of them is better because they could sort of balance each other out or lead to these funny Nodachi stalemates. <laughs> Some Nodachi duels? Yeah. Nodachi Jutsu duel low. Okay, so maybe we do want to. Yeah, let's start a playable 2x. We can always dial it back to one. I don't think I'm ever cutting this, though. No. All right, let's go to an equipment with a lot more rules text. Oathkeeper, Takeno's Daisho. Three mana for a legendary artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus three, plus one. Whenever equipped creature dies, return that card under, uh, to the battlefield under your control if it's a samurai. When Oathkeeper dies, exile equipped creature. Equip two. Okay, that was a lot. Let me kind of quickly recapitulate. Plus three, plus one. If this is equipped to a samurai and it dies, it comes back. If this thing dies, you exile the equipped creature. I think this is pretty good. I think the exile trigger here is kind of funny, and I assume it's for flavor reasons or something. I don't feel like it's that relevant an ability, really. The stat boost here, I'd say, is tolerable, but not amazing. Like, plus two, plus two, I think would have been better than plus three, plus one. Five mana is, like, a lot to invest for a boost that comes with no keyword abilities. It's it's a bit rough, and it's also, unlike Nodachi, which, you know, you can play on two, equip on three, turn two, turn three. This is reverse, so the mana cost is three, and then the equip cost is two. So it's a little more awkward to to get out there and onto a creature. I I kind of prefer that that ratio, honestly. I mean, it gets it makes it harder to get out, but it means you can hop it around easily or respond to removal more effectively. You know, I just I just kind of noticed that like the flavor of this card is is pretty awesome, and I'll I'll get into that in a second. But I I just realized when the the samurai comes back when it comes back into play, you know, from dying with Oathkeeper equipped. It doesn't actually get Oathkeeper equipped by default. You have to pay that again. That's a good point. It feels like it should, doesn't it? Even though it, it does. doesn't say it on the card. Yeah, he comes back and he's like, where Where was that sword again? <laughs> that Samurai text is funny. It's a little tough to evaluate. Like, it, I, I don't think Samurai full tribal is likely to get there very often in a set cube. But I also, I started thinking about Heirloom Blade, which is also a three mana equipment. It also gives plus three, plus one. And it also has like a tribal based ability that can sometimes buy you back cards that card is like a medium power cube staple so i felt like you know i feel like plus three plus one is almost good enough on its own and if you get some samurai i think this jumps up to around the playable mark i think this gets pretty solid if you have even two or three samurai in the deck yeah yeah i agree and i i do wonder how many samurai we're going to get in a deck like even if you're really consciously trying to get as many samurai as you can i wonder how many you can end up with on average. Yeah, it does feel like one of those things where like when you count the filters of drafting the cube, building your list, getting them into play, like the number of times you're going to have a samurai and this, and it's going to matter. I don't think it's going to be every game. But I I think you're right that like getting plus three plus one and like a repeatable plus three plus one uh, with a pretty low equip cost is not too bad by itself. Yeah, we've also got a lot of samurai still in the cube, just filtering. There's like eh, about 50 sam- copies of samurais in right now before we raid all of them. So I think there's going to be there's going to be samurai to go around. Yeah, that's pretty good. 
Okay, so I said I wanted to get into the flavor, and I will now, because I think the flavor is awesome here of this this undying samurai keeps coming back from the grave again and again to like keep his oath, I assume. And then you mentioned the the exiling the samurai when Oathkeeper is destroyed. I think the at least the idea I take from that is the samurai sort of dies forever when the swords are lost. So he's his soul is like bound to this Oathkeeper, and he keeps coming back as long as Oathkeeper is around, but once it's destroyed, he's gone forever. That's pretty ba- badass. Yep, kind of a flavor slam dunk. Love it. Uh, where do you land on ratings? I was kind of caught between meh and playable on this. I came down at meh just because eh, I don't think it's going to be exceptional, but I think it'll be solid. Yeah, that's that's pretty much where I'm at. It might get outclassed by Nodachi. We'll have to see. I think it will get outclassed pretty consistently by Nodachi. Should we say meh 1x? Yeah, let's go with that for now. All right. Next up, we've got Orochi Hatchery XX. That's the mana cost for an artifact. Orochi Hatchery comes into play with X charge counters on it, and you can pay five mana and tap it to put a 1-1 green snake creature token into play for each charge counter on Orochi Hatchery. So I, I think I mentioned this earlier. This is the second rare, or this was the second rare that came in uh, the snake theme deck way back in the day. It was just as disappointing to get in that deck as it was for me to read it just now. This card is so, so expensive and gives you so little reward for all the mana that you're spending uh, that it's just maddening. Like, I have actually tried to play this card in the past, and it is just a big steaming pile. You've committed so much mana. I, I won't say what it's a pile of, but you've committed so much mana into this, and the reward is just so marginal. So, like, let's come up with a few scenarios here. If if you're playing this to sort of be able to activate it on curve, meaning you play it the turn before you can afford to pay the five mana activated ability, paying four mana to play the hatchery. So each of those X's in the XX mana cost is two. So that means it has two charge counters. So if you play this on turn four with two charge counters and then activate it on turn five, you have spent nine mana to get two one ones. And if you've, let's say, let's say that you've saved this as your big turn eight play. So you're spending eight mana to get it to get it out there. Each of those X's is four mana. Then congratulations, you have four one ones on turn nine. <laughs> you're carrying a lot of bitterness in your heart towards this card. It's just, I mean, it it looks like it should be kind of cool and give you a ton of snakes, but it's just not going to do that. Yeah, I. I know what you mean. It's really tough to make the math line up on this card. Like, let's say you cast it at six. So that's three charge counters. Again, you just do the math and it's like, okay, so you cast that between turn five and eight for six mana. The next turn, you make three snakes. So you're at 11 mana. You got three snakes. The next turn, you do it again. 16 mana has got you six snakes. Next turn, 21 mana to nine. 26 mana to 12. Like, no matter how far you extend that timeline, it just feels the ratio doesn't seem to get better in the way you would expect. And I think it's down to the activation cost. Like, if this was three tap, I think this would be pretty solid. But the fact that you basically need to dedicate your whole turn to it every time, it's just missing that explosive factor that you associate with these sort of token makers. Yeah. I think what I really find the most disappointing or frustrating about this card, other than getting it in that snake theme deck, is that you can't make it better after yes, you play it yes. at least within the confines of kamigawa like it it seems like something where you should be able to pour more mana into it to make it better over time but it's not because the x cost the mechanism that puts the charge counters onto it is paid when you put it into play and whatever you decide x is going to be you're stuck with that number of charge counters 
and you don't have a way to make it more efficient to get more snakes out of your five minute tap. Yes, uh, totally agree. It's like if you compare it to Hangerback Walker. Now, obviously, Hangerback Walker is from a different or, uh, era of magic where cards were much stronger. Um, but Hangerback Walker basically gives you choices and Walking Ballista, you know, these classic cube cards. Both of them essentially let you decide each turn. Do you want to invest some mana and energy into adding counters to this? Uh, or do you want to crack it? They do it in different ways, but they both pose the same question. And this card is notably missing that. And I feel like, honestly, at the cost of this thing, asks of you it could have just added a charge counter every time you do the snake like if instead this said five tap put a snake into uh, create a snake add a charge counter so you had this kind of constantly growing threat i think this would be a really fun card that you'd probably see a lot of in uh like low power edh and stuff but as it is it just never it never seems to get explosive in this way that uh it it needs to and it's, it's kind of a an unfun design too because you're holding this in your hand and you're thinking okay like can i play it now on turn six and three charge counters like is that enough or do i like do i want to hold on for turn eight or turn 10 when i'm going to put a ton of charge counters on it and it 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 sort of keeps you from playing the card it keeps you from like having fun with it because you're thinking do i need to hold this which i like i guess is is sort of you know a game decision in its own way but i don't think it's a very fun one it isn't i i do want to go to bat a teeny bit for this card i i feel like i don't i respect your childhood drama connor and Thank you. this is one of the most played artifacts from the set in EDH. It's one of the most cubed artifacts from the set. And I think it's not the worst. I think it is still just on the bubble of meh for our cube. And it is completely unique in Kamigawa. There's no other effect that does anything like this. Mm-hmm. And if you commit... So we've been talking about the kind of low mana commitment. I do think if you commit like 10 or 12 mana to this, this starts to get pretty overwhelming pretty quick. You know, making five snakes a turn in Kamigawa is enough to get a dub in pretty short order. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. But if you're if you're at 10 mana, is this what you want? Well, you don't have that many options is the thing, right? Like what else do you have yeah. at the high mana cost? You've got the Myogen, which we uh, have agreed are not very good. We have kind of soul shift shenanigans. And I think that's about it, right? There's just not a lot you can do at the t- very top of the mana curve in Kamigawa, even though you get to a lot of board stally, slow grindy games. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose so. I mean, I just... Can we talk about the art first? Can that be a tiebreaker? What do you think of the art? Yeah, let's do that. I, I don't like it that much. But describe it first, right? That's that's the rules. Okay, that's kind of tough. <laughs> that's why I asked you to do it. Uh, it's very purple. It's very purple. I'll say that at the outset. What you've got here are what sort of look like these large eggs on the end of tendrils and they kind of have these various orifices in them Mm -hmm. i think they're windows window feel free to feel free to jump in here and i guess these are hatcheries that the little baby snakes are being grown in uh it looks very alien and uh kind of gross and disturbing it this looks like mirrodin art to me other other than the trees in the background and the snake person and the snake person who you can barely see. I think is actually the only card. I'm scrolling back through the spoiler. I think this is the only card in Champions really that gives us any sense of what the snake people's like world and society looks like. There was that one snake flip card. Yeah, that's flips into Shidako Broodmother, right? Uh yeah. And even that's a little bit of a limited glimpse. So this is kind of our one glimpse at the Orochi's habitat, which is kind of fun. Doesn't look like a very Nice habitat, speaking as a non-snake person. Mm-mm. I wouldn't want to live there. But, you know, we don't 
we don't know what they like. The one thing about these structures is they look based on the snake person, they don't really look like there's much room for an adult in there, so that's kind of confusing. Well, it's a hatchery. Yeah. So it's, it's full of babies. Okay, one last thing before we get to ratings. This, I think, might be a reference to Snake Basket, which I think is from like Visions or Mirage. It's one of the earliest uh, token producers in Magic. And I just feel like it can't be a coincidence mm. that one of the few, the only artifact token maker in the set is making snakes just like Snake Basket. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I bet there's something to that. So I have this build around as kind of like a top end for the ramp deck. Where do you have this? I have it at Instacut. Maybe build around is fine. There isn't all that much to ramp into, as we discussed, I think, quite a bit in green. So maybe this is something that you you want to grab if you are sort of moving in that direction. Well, here's the other thing. You don't have to be in green. This is like one of the few. Yeah, yeah. This is maybe the only color neutral high top end card we have, except maybe uh, Tatsu Masa coming up later. But there's not a lot that's color neutral uh, that can fill the top, very top of a mana curve. Okay. All right. That's that's a very good point. I'll give you that. Is that enough to bump it to a build around 1x, at least to start? Okay. Yeah. Let's let's do it. Let's try it. All right. All right. Okay. Let's go to Reito Lantern. Two for an artifact. Three. Put target card in a graveyard on the bottom of its owner's library. Okay, so this is basically an expensive way to hose the Soul Shift deck. It is stupidly expensive. Um, you know, we keep talking about like casting cost plus activation cost for these, but you kind of have to because they're also startling. It's five mana before you put the first thing on the bottom. I can't get away from the fact that that is pretty ludicrous. That's a lot of mana. But I think having it in there as a one of, as like a kind of Hail Mary, like last ditch thing to try to combat a Soul Shift deck, I think that's worth having, even if it'll often clog the back of a pack. It's almost like a disenchant or something where it's never rarely the best thing you can pick up, but occasionally it'll make your sideboard and occasionally it'll come into a game and do a few things. Yeah, I, I kind of like the idea of having it around as like a, a backup utility tool it's it's a very gentle soul shift hating card <laughs> like you're you're paying a lot for it and it's uh not the most efficient way it's not a permanent way of getting rid of the spirit but playing paying a lot against the soul shift deck is kind of okay because that deck is expensive and slow you know what i mean it's not like you're paying right. a lot to slow down aggro you're playing a lot to slow down the slowest deck in the format right i also really like this art yeah yeah the art is really also very very purple but it's totally purple it's like our second completely purple you want to describe it? Yeah, it's well, it's pretty easy. You know, I, I got the easy one. It's like a, a lantern sitting amidst a kind of ruined uh, house at night and everything's purple and it's very serene looking. Honestly, it's just really serene. Uh, which is, I don't know if that's a, appropriate or ironic given where this is. The town of Reito, isn't that, wasn't that destroyed by the, the Kami, like the beginning of the Kami War or something? I think so, which kind of makes the flavor... What's the flavor here? The flavor is it's like a human lantern that continued to burn. I mean, the flavor text says, Lanterns carved from the mystic stones of the Reito mines were said to light the way of lost souls. Which almost but not quite connects with the flavor for me. Like, so the, are we guiding the spirits back to a the spirit realm? And I don't quite get the flavor here. I sort of read it as like the all the people that perished there, their lost souls are being guided somewhere else by this lantern. That works. Yeah. Yeah, I have that as a meh 1x, which feels a little generous, but I don't know. I'm feeling, I guess I'm in a generous mood. I, th I think we should try it out. And meh is like, that's the least generous we can be to a card while still having it in. So. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> to see this as more than a meh. Like, I don't think we'll ever be like, God, this was an auto include. We should have rated this at the top. 
Yeah, we're going to look like fools at the end of this one. Yeah. When the Rachel Lantern meta forms. Meh, meh, one X. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. We've got a very, very big one coming up. I'm, I'm nervous about. Yeah, a little different than Rachel Lantern <laughs> in reputation. Yeah, a little bit different. Probably a little more well-known and familiar to listeners. I- I've been more nervous about this card than any other card in the block except Umizawa's Jute. Yeah. Let's see how we do with it. This is Sensei's Divining Top. One mana artifact. You can pay one to look at the top three cards of your library and put them back in any order. And you can tap it to draw a card then put it on top of its owner's library. So I don't, I don't know where to start with this card. It's obviously one of the most iconic and heavily played cards in the set. It's the number three card from this set in EDH. It appears in thousands of cubes. It is a tournament deck staple and centerpiece especially in Legacy. It's been banned in multiple formats, but it was originally designed to enable the Deceiver cycle that we, <laughs> this is the best thing that about we have this such card. a great relationship with. Do you want to recap the Deceiver cycle real quick? Yeah, so the Deceivers are a cycle of Kami. There's one in each color that we've uh, gone through, so go back and have a listen to, to the earlier episodes if you want to get some Deceiver talk. But the way that these Deceivers worked is you can use one activated ability, pay some mana to look at the top card of your library. And then you can pay another amount of mana to reveal the top card of your library. And if it is a land, get some very, very marginal benefit. <laughs> so the idea of Sensei's Divining Top is you would rearrange the top cards of your library in order to enable your Deceivers and have their ability trigger, which is just really, really wonderful to think about <laughs> when, you, when you look at where this card has gone. <laughs> It's so cute. It's such a great example of the kind of design mistake that can, you know, that, that happens when you're designing, like Wizards gets a lot of crap for making mistakes like this. But the reality is Magic is, in my view, is Magic is a tremendously complicated game. You know, yeah. they release back then, what, 600 cards a year. Nowadays, maybe a thousand, you know, which ha- interact with 22,000 or whatever other cards. Like the fact that Wizards doesn't break the game more than once a year, I think in some ways is kind of amazing. It is. But it is amazing to think that this card slipped through in order to enable one of the most forgettable cycles of all time. And then it's like been banned in two, like in modern and legacy. It's been played in vintage. It's in 8,000 cubes. Like it's funny to think about. Yeah. And it, it all goes back to these deceivers. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. There, I did find a, a really, really wonderful quote um, from Patrick Chapin, who I guess is one of the hosts of the top level podcast. Um, who, after this was banned in Legacy in 2017, said, Sensei's Divining Top gets no hat tip from me. There are very few cards, probably zero in the history of Magic, that have cost as many human lifetimes as Sensei's Divining Top. <laughs> and I think that just, that really sums up all the problems with this card and and why it had to go. Yeah, so that's most famously the case, right, in formats with Fetchlands, where, you know, this essentially reads like a reusable brainstorm where you can look at the top, shuffle if you don't like what you see, look at the top, shuffle, put top on top. So this was played a ton in Miracle decks and Legacy and in, um, I think primarily in Miracle decks. It, uh, it doesn't sound like much, but the reality is it just adds this lag to every game cycle. And that's not just true in powerful formats with fetch lands. Like when I've seen this played in low power casual environments, when I've played this in our cube and test drafts, you know, before we got to rating it, the exact same thing persists. Like it seems dumb, but when you have top, you basically have to do this look at the top three every turn cycle because you'd be a fool not to. And it it just slows down yeah. the game in this way. That's not fun for either player. Like it's obviously not fun for the opponent, but I think it's also not really that fun for the player to play who to play optimally has to do this pretty boring game action every single turn cycle. 
Right. It was it was super interesting to me reading the actual announcement of this being banned in Legacy, which was 13 it was banned 13 years after it was printed. And like one of the main reasons that was cited by Wizards is that this delays tournaments. Like this card slows down play so much like not in a not in a sort of within the game mechanics kind of way but just like the actual game is going too slow and the tournaments are going too slow and every game is taking too long and we cannot have this card like constantly slowing everything down i thought that was super interesting yeah and i totally see it so how do we rate this connor so i've had this as an instacut in the days since i rated it i've been percolating and i i'm somewhere between this is the first time we've said this in the podcast instacut and auto include right like that's a wide range. <laughs> on power level, it's an auto-include. In terms of its effect on play, it's kind of an insta-cut, but I also wonder maybe we can have one of these in because it is super iconic. I don't think it breaks the format. You know, I don't think it's like... GTA has a different problem, right? Like, GTA's problem is it's probably around four times better than any other card in the set. Like, it's just one of the yeah. best uh, equipment. Maybe the, it's the best equipment ever printed and one of the best creature combat cards ever printed. I don't think Top has that problem. It just has this deleterious effect on gameplay. And I'm wondering if maybe I'm rating that too highly. Maybe I need to take into account the uh, the place this has in the history of Magic. Yeah, I, I feel really conflicted about this. So I have this as an Instacut also. Because of what we have been talking about that I I don't know. It's certainly not fun for the player that doesn't have the top. Yeah. And I don't know how much fun it is for the player who does have the top. Obviously it, you know, is gonna it's going to help them win the game, especially with some of the I think green and blue cards, especially that let you get some shuffles in there. But I just don't know if it's gonna be fun to have it around. The things that make top oppressive are in multiple formats are like Fetch lands above all, right? Because they let you rejigger the deck whenever you don't see what you want. They are counterbalance, which if you're not familiar with it, um, first, congratulations, <laughs> you missed out on one of the most obnoxious cards in Magic. But counterbalance is a card that says every time your opponent casts a spell, you flip over the top card of your deck and counter it. If the mana value on the card you flipped is the mana value of the spell that's being cast, top is super obnoxious with that. And miracles, right? And we don't have any of those in here. There's not a huge amount of shuffle effects. There's not that many things apart from the deceivers, which we've cut, um, that interact with top really. So to me, it's like, it's, it's bordering on a trap card, I think, because I think honestly, absent those effects, it's kind of a marginal card. Like, I don't think it's, it, it looks better than it is, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's true, but it's still, I, f- I feel like it's just, gonna, just going to make the game less fun every time it shows up. I mean, honestly, it's just true. It, it will. The other thing about it is not including it would save us a lot of money if we ever decide to build a cube in paper. Because <laughs> this is, <laughs> it certainly would. For an uncommon, this, this is the rare distinction of being an uncommon that is by far the most expensive card in the set. This is like 50 bucks in its original printing. Big money save for us. Yeah, I, I had a few of these back in the day that I misplaced, which... Still hurts to think about. Uh, this was also in the snake deck. <laughs> I love that. I love that snake deck. It's so <laughs> ill just, just got to throw that in there. <laughs> I know. Uh, all right. I, I think I'm willing to go to your Instacut. And I know this is going to pain people. It's It feels wrong to cut one of the most iconic cards in the set. But from a play perspective, I think you're right. It just it just doesn't it doesn't bring anything to the table. It only brings uh, like irritation. And it, I mean, it does it does feel wrong. But at the same time, everyone knows that this card is from this set. Like we don't we don't need to have this in the cube to kind of capture the essence of Kamigawa because this card is a big part of that essence already. Print out the art and put it on the box of the cube. Yeah, there you go. With a disclaimer, this card does not appear in this cube. Sunset's Divining Top, not included. <laughs> All right, I'm fine cutting it. Because the other thing, sorry to keep doubling down, but the other thing about it is this is already a kind of slow, grindy, board stall format. And I think the last thing you want is something that adds more game actions 
to those turn cycle. <laughs> that is not what this format needs. All right. Goodbye, top. Instacut. Instacut Sensei's dividing top. Please direct all email to clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, let's go on to a, a nearly as iconic card, Shell of the Last Kappa. Everyone's second favorite artifact. I know. It just it pops up in so many discussions. We're being ironic. Shell of the Last Kappa, three mana, legendary artifact, three tap, exile target instant or sorcery spell that targets you. The spell has no effect. Three tap, sack it. You may play a card exiled with Shell of the Last Kappa without paying its mana cost. Gosh, this is such a weird set. Half of these artifacts are just like, what? what is this? Why does this card exist? What is this for? I don't under, I really don't understand this card. Like, I know we've been saying this for a lot of the artifacts, but I don't understand why it costs three to cast, three to activate, and you have to sack it in order to copy the spell that's been exiled. Like, I, that is just ludicrous to me that it would cost you nine mana to do that. I feel like the first thing should cost one mana or just a tap. Like, is it really too much to let a three mana do nothing artifact let you counter a single burn spell per turn cycle? Like, I I don't understand the balancing on this card. It just, this feels like one where they were scared because of Mirrodin and they turned every number up late in development out of uh, tremendous caution. Yeah. I I love how everything about it is, is so slow and inefficient and just, it's so disappointing, just bad. Like Three to get it in play, three to activate any ability on it. You only get to use one of the spells that you've exiled. Both the activated abilities tap. Like, you know, you're you're not going to be able to get this out to defend yourself from a spell that you think is about to hit your face because it's going to cost too much and it's going to be too slow. At first, you have to exile the spell and then you got to use it. So I, I kind of love just how like perfectly inefficient it is. I honestly, I think the first ability, like in terms of balance across the history of magic, I think the first ability could have just been whenever a instant or sorcery spell would target you, exile it. It could have just been yeah. free and continuous and this would have been adequate. Or at least not cost mana. I know. Uh... Like, uh... <laughs> It's so bad. If you think of this in terms of like stealing a spell and being able to use it instead of just protecting yourself, then you are paying six mana to use that spell. And like how many how many spells are there that target you specifically as the player? It's basically burn spells, which are all like yeah. one or two yeah. or three mana. So you're always down on mana. Tarot. Ah. Yeah. So you spent six mana to capture a glacial ray. Yeah. Ugh. If this wasn't so utterly mis miscosted, this might have been like a kind of EDH role player. Maybe I, I might be getting out of myself, but like maybe would have shown up as a weird like sideboard card against burn decks and modern back in the day. Like I could have done something somewhere if every part of this did not cost three mana. Yeah, they just seemed so determined to make this. Do not let this card do anything. Do not let it break anything. Don't don't let it have any real power. It'll just look shiny. Has this ever? had an effect on a game of magic like has anyone ever you used this to do something anywhere yeah ah. i will say the flavor is pretty cool here like the, the card itself uh is cool but bad but the flavor is kind of clever right you've got this this shell that's like capturing these spells and then you get to release one of them like it's holding them in the shell for later and then you get to release one of them yeah it's pretty bad from a historical preservation standpoint though to destroy the shell of the last kappa like we've already we've already made them extinct and now we're destroying the last remnants of them it it gave its life to to turn this glacial ray around uh it makes sense that it's legendary for that flavor reason. It is literally the shell of the last one. So that makes sense. But it's again, like, there's no reason for this to be legendary except flavor. Like, this card could be non-legendary with 
<laughs> this wasn't going to run away with any games based on being non-legendary. Now, speaking of speaking of legendary, I found this gatherer comment that was just so wonderful to me. The writer of this comment gave this card four and a half stars. Whoa. And they said, I like how its sacrifice ability means other copies of this legendary aren't dead weight in your hand. (laughs) (laughs) Just they're so excited about the idea that, oh, this shell's gonna die. So that means you can play another legendary shell of the last coffee. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that that was one of the best comments I've seen. That's great. It, I, I love how generous Gather is to these cards, because it's just like, the, I don't know what deck you're up against where this matters. I mean, maybe if your opponent was on like a, what is that a five mana sorcery that mills the half of your library? You know what I'm talking about? Traumatize, maybe? Um, but you know, like maybe if your opponent was on a plan where they're casting these really big kind of one-off effects, there's not a huge number of those cards, but there's a handful, like maybe you could see bringing this in. But the other thing is it's hard to include. I mean, this is never going in the main deck, right? Unless it's against your friends, I guess, and you know what decks they play. Like you could just, I'd say probably a plurality of games of magic go by without being targeted by an instant or sorcery. Like that is not the majority of magic games. Yeah. And I, I mean, they know... It's coming, right? Like you have to get the shell out. It's pretty telegraph. It's not like this is an instant. This big shiny legendary shell is just sitting there. And go ahead, play your spell targeting my player. I'm sorry to keep ranting about this card that everyone knows is unplayable, but like it's also occurring to me, you have to leave up three mana. You're going to leave up three mana every turn cycle to do this. Like I think your opponent's coming out ahead on that, even if they had an instant sorcery spell. Yep. Yep. That all amounts to instacut, right? One of the easiest insta-cuts we've had. Yeah, you wouldn't think it from the length of our conversation, but this card is terrible. Okay, let's move on to a maybe, maybe not terrible card. It's at least super cool. It is super cool. This is Tatsumasa, the Dragon's Fang. That name. It's already cool. Six mana for a legendary artifact equipment with an equip cost of three. Equip Preacher gets plus five, plus five. And you can pay six mana exile this card, put a 5-5 blue dragon spirit creature token with flying into play, return Tatsumasa to play under its owner's control when that token is put into a graveyard. So this is a sword that turns into a dragon and then comes back when that dragon dies. That is so cool. And it kind of turns the creature into a dragon, right? Because like all the dragons are 5-5. So like from a flavor perspective, this thing is a freaking home run. But it doesn't come flying, which is kind of a bummer. But honestly, wouldn't it be too good? Would it? Yeah, I guess it kind of would. Well, where do you? We don't normally start with ratings, but I see our ratings are pretty far apart here. So maybe we should start by exploring that because I have this in auto include. I think this card is pretty damn good. I have it as a meh. I I wanted to say playable, and then I kind of went. I like looked at the mana cost again, and I was like, "Eh, that's a lot of mana. Because I was thinking, if if you're playing this to get the dragon token, you're paying twelve mana for that, which is you know this is plenty of mana, but you don't have to have all of that up front. You know you can play this on turn six and then get your dragon turn seven, which is only one turn later than you would get an actual spirit dragon. And it's a recurring dragon. It's like and it is a recurring dragon. It keeps coming back. And I mean, getting plus five plus five for an equip cost of three is pretty dang efficient. It's a monstrous rate. It's really cool and and feels like it's really good, but it's also so so expensive. Yeah, I've played this in test games. I will say, even though I'm really high on it from like a cool factor perspective, it doesn't impress that much because it is, I've had a few games where this sits in my hand and I'm just like dying on board and I don't have enough time to cast this and then equip it or exile it. it. It is interesting though, because there's not, this almost reads like a more modern card, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of like 
the fact that it never lets you down. Like one of the things I don't love about Modern Magic is that there are so many cards like Questing Beast or Rankle or Elder Gargaroth that like are always good in every situation. There's always something you can do with them. This card is a little bit of that DNA. Like if you've got a good creature, it makes that creature like stupid big. If you don't, it lets you get a dragon and then it lets you recur the dragon. Like there's not a lot of situations, assuming you can get to the mana cost where you can cast this. There's not a lot of situations where this is going to let you down. Like this thing, this thing brings it. Yeah, that's that's true. And if I had all this mana, I would much rather have this card than Orochi Hatchery. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Maybe this is the curve topper. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, it can appear in any deck. So, okay. I, th- I think meh is too... Too unkind of me. I see you've got auto include. Yeah, and that's mostly on cool factor, I'll admit. That's not really on playability. Like it, when we think about general cube playability, I mean I think the majority of cubes, this is just way too slow. I think it's almost too slow for ours, but it's just really cool. It's a really cool card. It is really cool. All right, I'm gonna I'll I'll come up to I'll come up to auto wow. include. I want this in. I th- it's it's pretty, it's pretty cool. cool. I also really like this gatherer combat from someone named Cyphertech, who just wrote, Seven years ago, this kicked any and all ass that got in its way. Which I think is pretty great. All, all the ass. Any and all ass get kicked. Okay, well, let's uh, let's put it in and see how many asses get kicked by it. I hope it kicks at least some of them. All right, let's talk about Tenza, Godo's Mall. Three mana for a legendary artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus one, plus one. If it's legendary, it gets an additional plus two, plus two. If it's red, it gets trample. Equip one. I think this card is super cool. I'm not quite sure. Playability is really tough to evaluate here because of the conditionality. Um, we do have Tap Tap, one of our commenters on Reddit who also has a Kamigawa set cube, who says this kicks ass, especially with Brothers Yamazaki, um, which I love. If you're not familiar with Brothers Yamazaki, they're these two legendary red brothers who are the only legendary creatures in Magic that can coexist, which is pretty cool. I'm kind of surprised, honestly, this doesn't see more cube play. Like plus three, plus three in Trample is a ludicrous rate for an equip cost of one. It admittedly asks you to put in the work to do that. But I think even outside of Kamigawa block cube, I think this is kind of a, it's almost a build around. It's kind of a fun build around challenge that asks you like, can you distort your deck building just enough to make Tenza good? Because you don't have to distort it that much for this to be solid, at least. I mean, I think it's also just kind of okay, even if you're not meeting these conditions, like just being able to get the plus one, plus one for an equip cost of one. I don't know about that. Like having having that as something you can just sort of like move around and that's laying in scimitar, Connor. Have on a creature all the time. How how is that good enough? That's a laying in scimitar that costs three to cast. I, I gotta object to that. That's not it's not that bad in this set. A three mana laying in scimitar? Surely that's bad even in this set. I mean it's not great, but like <laughs> I I'm not saying I would throw it into a deck with no reds and no legendaries, but it's like if if you don't happen to have everything lined up quite yet oh i see you're saying you've got this in a deck that can turn it on it's not totally embarrassing before you turn it on to just throw it out there right it's still like it's still going to do something it's not like some of the other artifacts that we've seen where it's literally doing nothing until you have the exact conditions to enable it like it's still giving you a little bit of something until you get your brothers yamazaki out it is nice to have a little bit of a reward for being in red because red in this set and this block is I think by far the weakest color. So just any, anything that makes you not feel embarrassed to be in red is, is a good thing in my book. Yep. I, I almost wonder from like a cube construction standpoint, would you almost count this as a red card? Because I think if you're not in red, well, I guess actually it doesn't have to be a red legendary. Like if you put yeah. this on one of the white two drop legends, I think it's it's totally great. Like plus three plus three is is insane if you manage to get into that white kind of weenie deck. Yeah. 
Totally. My God, can you imagine this on Isamaru? You're turning your Isamaru into a 5-5 five five for like two mana, two mana invested? Isamaru loves malls. <laughs> He's swinging in his maw. That's so cool. I do like uh, the art here. So this is Tenza Godo's mall. It belongs to Godo Bandit Warlord. And the art here is just sort of a, a continuation of the art of Godo. Not literally, like he's not, it's not just a, a clip of the exact same painting, but you can see Godo's hand in the bottom left corner of the art here, and then the mall swinging around on basically the same kind of background that you see in Godo's art of, I guess, a red sky with gray clouds, or maybe a gray sky with one red cloud, and then the armies of Godo with their spears up in the air. So it's kind of a like cool callback to Godo. Yeah, and I like that Godo has the mall in his art, like it's it's hanging by the side of whatever kind of beast he's writing. I haven't really paid attention, but like, what is Godo writing? I also appreciate that it's really good with Godo. So Godo, six mana. When he comes into play, you could search your library for an uh, equipment and put it into play. The fact that this equips for one, you know, with Godo, you sneak around the kind of tough casting cost on here to just for one mana, throw this on Godo and turn him into like a six, six trampling unstoppable monster. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Is this by the same artist as Godo? So Godo is yeah, I'm pretty Paolo sure. Parente, I think it is. Parente. Parente, yeah. Uh, where do you come down on playability for this thing? I feel like it's playable. Like It's not going to be great all the time. You're not always going to want it, but if you happen to be moving in the right direction, like I, I think you're very happy to have this card. Yeah, I had it at playable, but I kind of want to ask you what you think of build around. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a reverse build around. You put it in if you are already moving there. Maybe ignore it if it's too late to go in that direction. I feel like for a cube design standpoint, it kind of begs the question of how many legends. Like I read that if it's red, because it's got red in the art and because it's Godos, I think of this as a red card. But really, I think it's a legendary tribal card, right? right? Like the plus two plus two is far more important than the trample, I think. They both matter. But like really, this is a legends matter card. So it depends to me on how many legends make it what the density, I guess, of Legends is in the final analysis for the, for our set cube. Okay, so maybe build around is right then. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Just one? I think just one. I'm, I'm very surprised, by the way, that this only appears in 250 cubes, and I want to challenge all the cube designers out there who like cute sub-themes to think about including this. I don't think it's amazing, but I think if you have any kind of Legend theme, this is pretty worthy of an inclusion in, in any kind of up-to-mid-power cube. Yeah, I agree. Challenge issued, cube designers. That's right. You have been challenged, cube design community. We want to see this 250 turn into 500 or something. Yeah. All right. You want to end us on our traditional whimper? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I love to finish out the episode with, with a card that we are probably going to insta-cut. Why is it always like this? I don't know. I, I feel like there was like one color, I feel like, where where we had a good card as the last card of the episode. Red ended on Zozu, who's pretty cool. Okay, I think black may have... Oh, Wicked Akuba. I guess it's not yeah, always yeah. like this. Black and red, but a lot of the other colors, yeah, it's blue, pretty blue rough. Blue and green were tough. And artifacts. Okay, sorry, sorry, audience, for that extended digression. Okay, well, we're going to end this one with a whimper, with Uba Mask. Four mana for an artifact. If a player would draw a card, that player exiles that card face up instead. Each player may play cards he or she exiled with Uba Mask this turn. Um... So this card, like, I, I guess at least it's, it suggests some interesting combos. I didn't really uh, go to the trouble of thinking of what those might be, at least within this cube. 
I guess if you could get a really big board advantage, you could sort of lock your opponent out of having very many options. You could make sure that they don't come back by just exiling every card they draw. I feel like this is one of those cards where we have to like split the conversation in half. Like I think for our cube, it's just clearly not getting there. Yeah. I don't think there's decks in this format that care enough about locking your opponent out of the ability to build a hand over time. I guess somebody might now come in and say, well, Saviors of Kamigawa cares about that. But I don't think we need a card that punishes save- Saviors of Kamigawa death. <laughs> punishes itself. Yeah, exactly. In terms of our cube, this is a clear insta cut. I almost think we can just take that as red. This does see a decent amount of play in other formats. Like in EDH, this shows up in about 4,500 decks, which I assume is why it commands a $12 price tag. And it does some kind of funny things. Like there's a card in EDH called Draineth Magistrate that prevents your opponents from casting spells except from from their hand. So this essentially says your opponents cast, cast spells with Draineth Magistrate, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it is fun. Uh, it's also fun with Master Transmuter, who taps to swap an artifact from your hand to the battlefield. So you can kind of like have your opponents exile and then stop them from being able to cast anything. So like anyway, there's some cute interactions in other formats, uh, just not yeah. in ours. Most of the gatherer comments are pointing to that sort of combo where you play this on your turn, you let your opponent, you know, you let their draw step happen and then you exile this. So now they're just exiling cards and can't play anything. Yeah, and I think that's great. And this actually is, was played, believe it or not, in Vintage for a while in a deck called Uba Stacks, which uses like Goblin Welder to get this back and then Bazaar of Baghdad to abuse the exile trigger so that you, you know, normally Bazaar of Baghdad, right? You draw two cards and discard three. So eventually you end up empty handed with Uba Mask. You exile those two cards and then discard, you know, the hand you don't care about. So anyway, it's I think it's pretty impressive that this card managed to show up in the most powerful format of Magic, even if it can't make the grade in our uh, less powerful format. I'd say it's uh, it's done enough for itself. It does, doesn't need to show off here in our cube. <laughs> That's right. Uh, what about the art here? I think it's kind of fun. It's fun. <laughs> it's like the, the mask is kind of fun looking. The background bothers me. It's just like blue background. Yeah, it kind of begs the question, like, what is this blue background? So it's basically, to summarize for anybody, it's a, it's a pretty lady holding a, a freaky mask with a long nose. Um, and you can look it up to see yep. the details. And then a like a blue background that's kind of alpha-like in its complete lack of context. Yeah, it is just bl- just a blue wash. Yeah, I, I kind of like it. It's very old school, but it, it makes me happy. Yeah, and it's like clearly very Kamigawa. You know, it's very Japanese sort of style of mask. I bet this looks really cool in foil and is completely unaffordable in foil. Yeah, oh, 65 wait, bucks. Let's... Oh, wow. But I bet it looks super cool. Wow shockingly it's never been reprinted which is true of almost every artifact in the set i think there's like <laughs> most how of, many the of these artifacts have been reprinted i think it's like one i think it's like long forgotten gohei might is that the only artifact oh and sensei's divining top oh, sensei's top yeah i think that is it that says a lot oof womp womp all right let's cut it let's insta cut it And that is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, As always, if you have feedback, thoughts, or memories to share about any of the cards or topics today, or about the handful of Champions of Kamigawa cards we haven't talked about yet, you can always email us at clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com, or better yet, just comment on Reddit. Uh, You can also follow along as the cube evolves on Cube Cobra. Uh, Just go to clockspinning.com for a handy link. Next episode, we'll be reviewing the last cards of Champions, which is to say uh, 10 lands and five more unplayable lands. Uh, And more excitingly, we'll at last reveal this mana base we've been hinting at for so long. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Austin. And I'm Connor. Thanks for listening.